Hey everybody, welcome to episode 143 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. And in this 143rd episode, we're going to be talking all about running current events. I've got Jojo Gretchel joining me back for a full recap of the distance events at USA's, including discussion on who won our prediction contest. Hint, it was not me in this case. Jojo got the better of me. But before we get to that full recap where we talk about all of the events and our impressions from those events, I wanted to talk a little bit about some running news announced this week, which affects the U.S. Marathon Trials coming up in Atlanta next February 29th. The New York Marathon announced its fields, and those fields are nicely stacked as usual. On the men's side, for example, you have the four top performers from last year all back and then, of course, you've got Mary Kitani performing on the women's side as well as the Boston winner, Dejepa, who's in that field. But interestingly, there were some U.S. names in the field that you might not expect given the proximity to the trials. You've got Des Linden, Kellen Taylor, Sarah Hall, and Ali Kiefer on the women's side as well as Jared Ward on the men's side. All of those names would be players in the top of the field in Atlanta on February 29th. They're going to now have 17 weeks to turn around from New York and get ready for the big race in Atlanta to try to make an Olympic team. And you've got to think there's probably at least a two to three re- two to three week recovery period post New York. And so you're looking at somewhere between a 13 and 15 week turnaround and build up to get ready for the trials. And I think some would argue that is a little bit too tight. You know, certainly if I were advising someone in one of my groups about marathons, I would I would discourage them from doing two marathons within a 17 week period. So that's an interesting choice. But one thing you have to consider and look at for these athletes, especially Jared Ward mentioned it in a blog that he put out about why he's doing the race. He said, look. I get about half of my annual running income from appearance fees for doing races like New York and Boston that he ran this past April. So if you're going to to think about sitting out a fall race or then again a spring race after the trials and then potentially another fall race after the Olympics, if you make it that far, then that's a lot of money to be giving up. And so it's really difficult for these athletes to sit on the sideline when there's big money on the line just to show up and compete as an American at these events. Now, also this year, there's a little bit more time between New York and the trials. In past years, it's been 10 and 15 weeks, respectively. And so the gap was a lot shorter. And in those cases, Meb himself was one who did New York and then then turned around and made an Olympic team on a fairly short timeline. So it's certainly been done before. And for an athlete like Meb or I think about Dez or Jared Ward in this case, that would probably be a more doable turnaround. For the other athletes, Kellen Taylor, Sarah Hall, Ali Kiefer, I think it's perhaps a little bit bigger of a leap to make that turnaround and then make the team. But then again, they're already on the bubble outside that initial list of favorites. And so perhaps you think 
they especially can't afford not to do a fall race and get the associated appearance fees. Plus, you have to think that Ben Rosario, Kellen Taylor from NAZ Elite know exactly what they're doing, exactly what their plans will be to get Kellen in particular ready to go to the trials. So that will be an interesting thing to see how it plays out. The other interesting note about this is when Des, Des particularly was asked about the tight timeline between New York and the trials, she had this to say. She said, I don't feel like I have anything to prove and anything unfinished at the Olympics. Quite frankly, the last experience is a hard sell to get back out there to try to compete for medals where you're not even really sure what the field is all about. It's a little bit difficult to be excited about that with the way we are about the marathon majors. People investing in anti-doping have been really have really been solving that problem at the majors. It's a little tricky at the Olympics, but certainly representing your country is special. So there she was alluding to the additional testing that the majors, marathon majors have put in place in order to try to ensure their fields are clean through the athletics integrity unit unit, and then obviously questioning the potential advocacy a clean nature of the Olympic fields as it was last time the the two of the athletes that finished ahead of her in Rio have already been busted for doping so she's right to question what the Olympics really does for her if if the field is not going to be protected as it should be by the US by the International Olympic Committee so when asked the question whether she would actually go out for the Olympics does was cagey and she didn't definitively say yes if she made the team at the trials in February. She also didn't even commit necessarily to running the trials in February. So that's a pretty interesting storyline and it might be that for her at this point in her career with a couple of Olympic games under her belt that going back to do Boston in April and then another New York next fall is worth it more to her than to run another Olympic Games. And as I think about it for her, I have to believe that actually winning a New York marathon would probably be on par with when it, winning an Olympic gold medal for her in terms of what it might do for her career and her legacy as a marathoner, especially in the context of future appearance fees and money that could be made in her career. And as I said, you also have to think about that deferral of appearance fees that you might be putting off if you don't do Boston because of the trials or you don't do New York or another fall marathon because of the proximity to the Olympics. So that's going to be an interesting storyline to see if Des actually shows up at the start line in Atlanta on February 29th. If she does, you have to believe that she's one of the favorites to be in the top three. If she doesn't, that potentially opens things up for one of these other athletes to make an Olympic team, which obviously would be a big deal. So it'll be interesting to see how New York plays out. And then of course, how that then affects the trials next February. So that's a little bit of current event news that I wanted to get to before we jump to our USA recap. As I mentioned, I've got Jojo Gretchel who did my preview show with me here. We're going to talk about all the, the distance events at USA's and recap those as well as give you the download on how the prediction contest went, which it actually came down to one single final, 
which ended up spelling the difference between the two of us. So let's bring JoJo back on the show. Welcome JoJo Shea back to the show at JoJo Shea. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) I should probably call you JoJo Gretchel by your full name, (laughs) but yeah, just at JoJo Shea on Twitter. A good follow because you're crushing it with these freelance articles on the running world. Just put out one this week on Lopez LeBong, which was awesome. We'll talk a little bit more about your impressions from that as we get into talking about Lopez's double victories from USA's. But we're here to recap, talk about all things USA's, kind of go back through not necessarily all the races and details, but talk about some of the highlights as well as get impressions and reactions from both of us. Before we jump in, though, I do have to you know, tip my hat to you on the victory for the prediction contest. <laughs> you you won 39 points to to my 35. And primarily that the difference came down to the men's 800 where you picked Hopple for third and I picked Harris. And if if that had flip flopped and Harris had had been able to run down Hopple at the end, then we would have ended up in a tie. So it was pretty close. But you you get the you get the victory. So nice nice work. Thank you. I will revel in this for the next <laughs> <Sure>. year. <laughs> Trash talk at least until our <laughs> next pre- prediction contest. So let's jo- let's go ahead and jump in, and we'll kind of talk event by event, going in the order order that we went last time. Although we're gonna gloss over a few of the perhaps less interesting finals, but I do want to start with the the 10k events that happened on Thursday night. Both interesting in their own ways. The women's 10K led things off, and Molly Huddle, of course, won her 28th U.S. title. Really running away from the field in the final. She's a machine. Yeah. It's insane how many U.S. titles she's won. I mean, I was kind of thinking about it. Like, you know, part of her story is losing that bronze medal at worlds in 2015 yep. to emily infeld right yep and emily will always have that but you know emily's always molly has this longevity and she has this streak of national titles and you know would you rather have that global medal or would you rather have like this sort of huge legacy on the track yeah i, yeah. I was just well and not just that. on the track on the roads as well right as she's won u.s titles in both both places you know, I predicted that she would win, you know, as I said, death taxes and Molly huddle to quote the great Kyle Merber. Sisson was solid. Well, to me, the interesting storyline for this one was the fact that Emily, Emily Sisson took the lead with about 5k to go about halfway through. They went through the first 5k, I think in about 1620. So a relatively modest pace for this group. Emily Sisson had had enough. She made it honest from there on in and then fairly quickly it was a pack of six and then of five that were that were away with Sisson leading the field until Molly Huddle took the lead with three laps to go. To me what was interesting is to see those two teammates but with Sisson doing all the work and there were a couple of moments where she kind of looked over her shoulder because Huddle was right there on her shoulder and it seemed like she was trying to figure out if Huddle was going <laughs> to actually help do some of the work but she never did and in the past they have traded off in races so that to me was kind of interesting to see that teammate dynamic without with with Sisson really not getting help from Huddle until Huddle just took the lead and ran her off her wheels 
Right. I mean, they don't always make, you know, they don't make, they have their own individual race plans and they're both trying to win the race. So it is interesting thinking about these teammate uh, dynamics sometimes. I mean, they're teammates. They're both coached by the same guy, but they don't even live in the same place anymore. So, and even when they were both in Providence, it actually didn't sound like they trained together that much as far as like workouts go. Right. And so. in the build up to London, they said their their schedules were basically completely different. Yeah. As they both have different strengths. So. Right. And, and Molly's strength is that killer kick at the end. So I wasn't surprised to see uh, that strategy play yeah. out. She played her best card and got the win and going yeah. away at the end, closed really strongly. I mean, they were clicking off 75 second laps and then Huddle took it down to 71 and then it progressed a little bit from there as she closed over those final three laps. Sisson had no answer. Interestingly, though, Kellen Taylor hung in there tough and was holding that second spot behind Huddle until the final 100 meters when Sisson came back around her, which for a marathoner who really doesn't have the accolades, same accolades on the track that, that Emily and Molly have, it was really impressive to see her hold on like she did and get that third spot really crushing Maria Maria Hall, who's much more of a 10K specialist, at the end. And that's why this race was kind of weird, because going into it, there's only three women with the world standard, Hall being the third one behind Huddle and Sisson. And if some of these other women wanted a chance to go to Worlds, they were going to have to push the pace a little bit more. And I don't think... I mean, sometimes it's a situation where... You know, I mean, the standards standards are tough and championship racing isn't always going to yield a fast enough time. Although we saw the latter half of the race. I mean, they could have they, done they it. They could have they done, it. done it. I mean, they, they ran a, almost a full minute negative split. Yeah. 1620 to 1520, roughly. And so. And, and yeah, Kellen if the Taylor's first half was honest, 5K, they could have done it. Yeah, sorry. Kellen Taylor's 5K PR is only like. 10 seconds slower than that. Than what she, what she <laughs> ran for the second half, yeah. So it is interesting, you know, but it was clear that that Taylor and Bruce weren't going to lead. You know, their strategy, it seemed, yeah. was to follow. Elena Tab, as we suspected, did t- try to keep the pace honest at the beginning as someone who needed the standard, but that didn't really pan out well for her once once Emily took the lead. But you got it. You know, it's just cool to see. I mean, you look at those top four. Stephanie Bruce, Kellen Taylor's teammate, ended up getting fourth. I mean, they're all marathoners most recently. So it's pretty cool to see the U.S. marathoners strong on the track. Of course, I still contend that Molly Huddle is best on the track. And I think it's pretty clear to me that her strengths lie there. And Emily Sisson's number one strength probably will ultimately be the marathon. So I could see Sisson winning potentially the Olympic trials in the marathon and Huddle coming back and winning the 10K Olympic trials next summer with both of those two athletes making the team. But fascinating to see these marathoners just really dominating the other 10K athletes in the field. Of course, as you mentioned, we still only have three of these going. Mario Hall ended up fifth, but she's going to Worlds because she had that that NACAC <laughs> title right. k- to get her qualifier. And so Huddle, Sisson, and Hall will still be your team with Kellen Taylor and Stephanie Bruce both opting for 
fall marathons anyway, so it may not be that they would have even taken that spot if it was theirs to take. Oh, actually, I think they would have because Kellen Taylor was on Twitter saying that she would have. Oh, and really? Joking Interesting. That, I mean, this year was different for USA's in that you had to have the world standard that weekend and you couldn't usually you know you can go chase for chase the the fat the time to qualify for a couple of weeks um and she was making a joke on twitter that they should she should keep running after her 5k final to like clock a 10k <laughs> time she clock it that weekend <laughs> so she she tweeted out because some people were saying that oh like they probably wouldn't have done worlds anyway but she actually did want to go yeah, I, I still debate whether that would have been true or not. I mean, she just announced that they just announced that she'll be racing New York marathon coming up. So my guess is those conversations were already in the works. And that's a big, much bigger payday than would be a 10K at Worlds. So. But I don't think she's ever uh, made a world team on the track. Maybe not. I just, I mean, I definitely, she's getting paid more to show up at New York. But yeah. Uh, it would have been interesting. Yeah. And Stephanie's already booked for Chicago, so she wouldn't have gone to Worlds. Or at least I, w- I wouldn't think she would have opted out of Chicago to go to Worlds. But either way, still impressive results from the two Hoka athletes getting third and fourth in this race. And, of course, uh, not unexpected that Huddle and Sisson were one and two. Let's talk about the men's 10K. This one you know, played out in some ways in at least one of the versions that we had discussed, which is that the Scott Simmons crew, the U.S. Army crew, decided to make it an honest race. And Kipchichir went out hard, looked like he wanted to get help from his teammates, Arasa and Courier, but they decided his pace was too hot. So the only one that ultimately went with him and was Lopez Lamong, and they got a really pretty solid gap on the field pretty early in that race and then it came down to a two-person race for the win with Lopez taking the lead actually fairly early I think it was three laps to go as well yeah and he got a gap on Kipchoge pretty quickly and then was able to start celebrating about halfway through that final lap as he had a solid gap for the finish but Lopez got the repeat 10k victory you talked to him for your article that was published this week on P- at Podium Runner. What do you think about Lopez's win and how did he react to it when you talked to him? Um, so, I mean, even though he was coming into the 10K as the defending champion from last year, I think sometimes people put a little bit of an asterisk, asterisk by uh, the results from USA's when there's not a world or Olympic team to qualify for because not everyone shows up to the line. Um and, and he hasn't run as fast of a 10K as some of these other guys. So, but, so I don't, I don't think him repeating was necessarily, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a for sure thing. Um, but in his head, he, he knew he was training hard. He was ready to go. He wanted to win the 10K. Uh, for him, the 5K was more of a, um, and I guess we'll get to that in a <laughs> second, but yeah. the 5K was more of a wild card because, I mean, I think most Americans don't expect to beat Paul Chalimo. <laughs> no. Even Chalimo didn't expect for somebody <laughs> to be with him at the end. But that's a different story. But, yeah, Lopez got a PR here. It was a facility record. He won ultimately by 17 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. Really I think it's just the dominating. 14th fastest time by an American. 
really uh, just dominating it's like a 50 the second PR. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing for me with this is that this proved, as well as his 5K result, that, and given his 1500 meter background, that he could run with anybody, you know, the best in the world, depending on how these races play out. Right. And, you know, he's probably not going to be in a paced Diamond League type affair that might be won in 26.45, but any race north of 27 minutes, if he's in it at the end, he has the closing speed to beat anybody in the world. And that's pretty exciting, especially now that he's been healthy for a couple of years and really showing that he's not done yet. So did he talk about worlds and his expectations for that? Well, should we wait for the 5K? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I just... I no, think with I don't want to wait. I th- well, I maybe I think we should go right into the 5K and talk about it. Yeah, okay. I think these two races well, are let's talk about both really together, related. I mean, I mean, I think he closed in 53 to beat Paul Chalimo. Was that right? Yeah, and he closed in 55 in the 10K, and that was with pulling up at the end, celebrating a little, a little yeah. bit in the last 200. Yeah, I mean... So he's got the wheels. I mean... Paul Chalima for the past couple of years has been, you know, a solid medal contender at global championships. So, I mean, for Lopez to come in and beat him uh, it just shows that he's up there as well. Um, now, I will say Paul hasn't. I don't know. He maybe hasn't raced quite as well so far as this season as he has in previous years, although he did get second at Prefontaine. Yeah. Um, so that is something. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Lopez is that, I mean, he's 34 years old. I think a lot of people had started to think he was probably on his way out. Um, But he's really just had really bad luck with injuries the past couple years. And now that he's been healthy for six months, he's just a totally different athlete. So is he going to focus on the 10K at Worlds? Uh, I mean, that one's first, right? Well, yeah, and there's really, from what I understand, no double opportunity there. So you have to pick one. Oh, well, actually, he doesn't have the... Um, oh, that's right. He doesn't, he doesn't have, have he doesn't the standard have the in the standard. 5K. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, and actually, so that's, its all, that's its own conversation. Yeah. The fact that Lopez and his teammate, Woody Kincaid, got first and third in the 5K. Neither of them uh, have the world standard, uh, which is interesting because Bowerman Track Club kind of famously doesn't race that much. So. Yes. Do you think Jerry, Coach Jerry Schumacher, does he look back at the season and think, I should have let these guys like race another time? Made a mistake, or maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, my gut tells me that Jerry knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> and <laughs> maybe this is the best because they he's would have proving done. that. And I do, I do think that the fact that Worlds is late this year might have factored into the equation for them, which is to say that. Maybe the focus really is the Olympics next year and having a later Worlds might mess with their cycles in a way that they didn't yeah. want to set themselves up for Tokyo next year. I don't know. Either way, Lopez is going to Worlds. Right. Maybe not. You know, maybe he can't do both events, but he's going to to, to the Worlds in the 10K. Ken Cade, honestly is not somebody that I expected to have a chance to make Worlds. Oh, yeah. Although maybe I should have thought that because I remember when I talked to Matt Centrowitz earlier this year, he said that Kincaid is a beast in workouts, so he did kind of give him a shout-out saying, look, don't don't overlook this guy. Yeah. 
So maybe we should have expected it, but maybe they didn't really expect that he would have a shot. So they were thinking more long term with him. Right. So I would never, frankly, ever question Jerry Schumacher's planning. But there was a point in the race where Paul Chalima was leading and he kind of was like, you know, there was a they could. Have, oh, you could blame they Kincaid have, for well, not they, getting they it. They could have gotten the world standard. Yeah. He's like, hey, like, come help. And oh, he yeah, basically refused to help, which. I mean, his goal is to place as high. It's just a question of, is your goal to place as high as possible or is your goal to like make it fast and try and make the world standard and get on the team? Right. Well, and clearly their plan was to, to make try the podium. to make a podium versus yeah. get the standard. But that to me is on Woody Kincaid for not making that decision to course correct and take, take yeah. the lead and do some work versus putting it on Jerry Schumacher, who was just trying to give his athlete the best chance to make a podium. But going back to the 10K real quick with that quick sidebar. So this was a two-man race. Lopez blowing away Kipchoge at the end. Interestingly, Career and Narasa were running third and fourth on the track. Career ended up getting a solid third place, but Arasa faded at the end and it almost looked like he quit after Career gapped him. Yeah. And then he ended up getting passed by Connor McMillan, the BYU athlete, who didn't even who wasn't even the top BYU athlete <laughs> at 10K at the 10K at NCAA's. So that was kind of fascinating, but I kind of I kind of I mean it was clear that Arasa just quit. Yeah. Well, you could see it on the yeah, in the stream. I mean, I mean, he, he was ran really a, he like ran an kind of jo- he was jogging it in, he and then an the other guy comes lap. up next to him, and then he does this wild like flailing sprint to the finish. But at this <laughs> point, he doesn't have enough track left. I mean, he ran an eighty-two second final lap. Arasa did, whereas McMillan ran sub 60, 59.9. So he clearly just quit, jogged yeah. it in once he realized he wasn't gonna make the team, which. To me, is kind of unfortunate. Maybe also a sign of of uh, lack of experience. You got to finish races, regardless of where you're going to. Yeah, fall. I don't think he realized anyone was close to him. He probably was like, "Yeah, I mean, he just gave but up." But he almost got passed by Connor Winter as well, who ended up only a second and a half back from Ten Man Elite. So anyway, that was kind of an interesting sidebar to watch at the very end. But this was a fairly predictable top three even though we thought Arasa might break through I think both you and I had him potentially on the podium I had him winning I thought he might break through in this race it wasn't meant to be it was the three veterans with experience on the podium Lamont Kipchishir career who got the top three and that's your world team for the 10k but I do think Lopez has a shot depending on how the race plays out at worlds to potentially be on the podium there I mean, I think if the race goes super fast, then that would stretch him, given his PR is this 27.30 that he just ran at USA's. But oftentimes, in those men's 10Ks at the world level, those paces dotted a little bit and then close really fast, which is how Farah has won consistently when he was in his heyday on the track. So, you know, I think Lopez has a shot to potentially medal, which is really exciting, you know, not since Galen Rupp have we seen a world medal for the U.S. in the 10K, which has been just a little bit. I think that was, what? Uh, well, 2012. 12, in the yeah, Olympics. in London, yep. Yeah. So it's been And also uh, noteworthy, Lopez is the first man since Galen Rupp in 2012 to win the 5K and the 10K at Nationals. That's so. true. So maybe he'll 
continue that streak and get a silver at Worlds. So let's go back quickly and just wrap up the men's 5K discussion since we did bring that up. Lopez got got the win, got the double, as you just said. Chilimo second, Woody Kincaid third. Bowerman Track Club getting two on the podium there, which is pretty awesome to see, especially since Ryan Hill wasn't even in the race. Did Lopez talk about his decision to double? Because it didn't seem like that was a clear choice after he won the 10K where he said the next day he was going to go run the 1500. Yeah. <laughs> but then didn't show up for that, ends up in the 5K to everyone's surprise and wins the damn thing. Did he talk about his decision making there? Uh, well, yeah, he wanted to run the 1500. Uh, Jerry told him not to. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think he had two or three days. I mean, the 10K was what, Thursday night and the 5K was until Sunday. Sunday. Yep. Um, so that just gave him a little more, little bit more rest and, uh, I think just why not go do it? Uh, Jerry knows I mean, he was eager. I mean, I do kind of question why he was thinking about doing the 1500 in the first place because <laughs> the five K makes a lot more sense and he ended up winning the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, um, he was asked in the mix zone the next or after <laughs> the 10 K and he said, I'm lining up for the 15 and they said, they asked him why. And he said, because I love track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty awesome. But I love the attitude. I love the fact that he came back and won. This race, though, was really interesting in that Paul Chilimo took it out hard. Lopez, Woody went with him. And then there was a gap to a second pack. I was really frustrated with somebody who picked on the podium for the 5K, Ben True. Because this has happened time and time again. In a guy that should have made more teams than he has made, yeah. given his pedigree and his resume on the road and on the track, I was disappointed to not see him make that move up to the top group. And he was kind of in no man's land there for a second where he could have gone forward like Lopez and Woody did to get to, to bridge the gap to Chalimo, but he chose to sit back and form a second pack. I just don't understand that. For a guy who is a little bit older and whose primary strength anyway is is a long grinding race versus a kick at the finish why you wouldn't put yourself in position to go with that faster pace i just don't understand it and he tactically i think made a huge mistake ended up while the group did end up regrouping after chalimo looked to lopez and to woody to take the lead and eventually they backed off the pace altogether and everybody got back together later in the race it still to me then set up this kick finish that ben true's not going to have an advantage in but he would have had an advantage potentially to edge would you know woody kincaid out for example for third or even just get fourth and still make the team because those other two guys didn't have the standard and yet instead he waited for the kick finish and then drew hunter hassan mead who are better kickers than him beat him and now are on the world team with chalimo and he's not just seems to me <laughs> just so stupid i mean the guy had the race that he needed playing out for him with somebody else taking the lead and, t and keeping on pace, but he just chose not to take that, take that bull by the horns. And I just don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a bad day. Maybe he thinks next to Drew and Hassan, uh, you know, he's going to be the one to kick and assuming, you know, knowing of that top group, only Paul has the standard. Maybe that's in the back of your head too. I think he just made the wrong decision in a split section second decision, probably uh, you know probably second guessing himself now. But he's done that before, and I just don't understand it. Like if you've made that mistake time and time again, 
why wouldn't you learn from that? I think Ben True should be on this team. I think he should have gotten potentially third or fourth behind Chalimo and Lopez if they if he bridged the gap and helped keep the pace honest. But he didn't. Chalimo looks around. Nobody's willing to go. At one point, he looks over his shoulder to Woody Kincaid. He's like, hey, come on, man, come around me. Woody shook his head, literally shook yeah. his head, no. And then eventually Chalimo goes out to lane two, outer, sides of, outer parts of lane two, and basically just hits the brakes and forces Kincaid to go around him. So Kincaid had to do some work, but at that point he slowed everything down, allowing everybody to reintegrate. I think in that case really props to Woody Kincaid for still getting third after having all that tactical stuff playing out. So Yeah, I just think that was weak not to try and make more of an attempt to get the time, especially because so they ended up out. ended up being so close. Of course. Yeah, no, he should have. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I mean, how much does it suck to actually make the podium? And I mean, how many seconds away were they? Uh, let's see. So Kincaid ended up 13-26. And I mean, so I think the standard is 13-15. So... Yeah. I mean, so they're still, he was still 11 seconds off, but. I just feel like this year's championship really just underscores the fact that you should always let the athletes chase the time because I think for Lopez and Woody to get top three and beat those other guys, I think they are capable of running that time. And, you know, if, if they had two, three more weeks, another month to get it, they would probably get it. So it's kind of annoying to like watch it and know that there's this like i mean it's it sucks to watch a race and know that there's this other uh race going on race within the race yeah yeah i agree especially in a year where you have so much time to the worlds should have given them at least another month in my opinion to go get it and in that case kincaid would have had a really good shot as it stands he got on the podium doesn't make the world team. The next two go. Hassan Mead, as we talked about, Drew Hunter, 10-man elite, gets their first world team member with Drew Hunter finishing fifth in this race, but third of those with the standard. Ben True ended up seventh. I mean, five seconds off of Hassan Mead. So he just got destroyed <laughs> at I the mean, end. I do want to give some props to Drew Hunter. I think it's pretty cool to see him make his first world team. Uh, I mean, he's maybe 21 22 at the oldest i think he's 21 yeah yeah um, yeah he's young because he turned pro right out of high school yeah so it's just cool to to kind of see that pay off and you know a lot of times we don't see these high school pros succeeding right away or succeeding at all um yep so uh for him to make the world team i think is cool and i think he's someone who's gonna keep making teams uh, for, you know, probably the next 10 years. So and I think this better, would be yep. a good experience for him. So definitely one to watch. But fascinating race. Congrats to Lopez on the double victory, as you said. First one since Rupp has pulled that off. Let's go next to the women's 1500 final, which happened on Saturday. As we predicted, it was a Houlihan Simpson 1-2 finish. You and I got this event, though, perfectly right with Nikki Hiltz coming by Kay Grace at the end to finish third and make a world team for her, which was really, really exciting. 
this race played out, I think, more or less like I expected. Yeah. You know, I, I sort of figured that somebody would be trying to keep it honest early. And then and then Simpson would have to make a, a move from further out to try to theoretically burn off that Houlihan kick, but that she wouldn't be able to and Houlihan would still come around at the end and finish as she does strongly at the end, which she did. And so there it went. Houlihan kicking to a victory with Simpson second and Nikki Hiltz coming by on the inside to, to, to beat Kate Grace. At the end, Sinclair Johnson also came around Kate Grace at the very end to win around the outside. Uh, so pretty cool to see Hiltz get this after having a great year so far and given her story that we alluded to a little bit in our preview show. And she ran a, a personal best, 403.55 to get the spot. Yeah. So Yeah, she just gets better and better every single race. She's been really fun to watch this season. And she's bold. You know, I think that's the cool part about Nikki Hiltz. She's not afraid. She's bold. She had to really kind of come back on Grace. You know, Grace had a little bit of a gap going into the final 100. She came back on the inside to pass her. Sinclair Johnson, who won NCAAs in the 15, she ended up fourth with a also a PB at 4.372. But I think the most disappointed in this field has to be Kate Grace. We talked about her decision to run either the 8 or the 15. She chose the 15 because she said she thought she had a better chance in the 15 to make the team. You and I would both debate that. Ended up fifth in this race, disappointed, got, got beat by two up-and-comers in Hilton, Sinclair Johnson. I don't know where Kate Grace goes from here, to be honest. Seems to me like she has to make a decision to either go down to the 8 if she wants to have a chance to make an Olympic team next year or even go up to the 5K where I think she would actually have a better shot to make a team as well. I don't even know if she's done a 5K. I don't know if she has either, but she's a strength-based runner. I mean, she's always been doing or she's done a lot of miles with her previous coach. Seems risky. <laughs> her previous coach. I, I, I is mean, it? the I 5K, the women's 5K which we should segue into. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the women's 5K is dominated by 1,500 runners. Exactly, um, my point So, exactly. yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean everyone who's a 1,500 runner can run a good 5K. But True. I, I mean, if I were her, I would stick to the 800. Go back if down. she had run the 800, she would be on the world team. Because not only, I mean, maybe she wouldn't have placed top three. I think she would have been in the fight with like Raven and Hannah for that, you know, kind of second, third spot. But the fact that whoever wins the Diamond League uh, potentially gets a fourth spot for their team, Ajay right. Wilson's probably going to win the Diamond League. So right. the fourth place person's going to go, which is Ciara Brown, yeah. who has been injured all year. Uh, I don't even know if she was in the final. She wasn't I mean, fourth Grace, place. There's no so doubt in my mind Kate Grace would have been Kate top four. I think Kate Grace would be on the team because she she's, you know, she's the next person with the standard. So if she was in the race, she'd be going. But... That's just my opinion. I also feel I mean, like she, almo she did almost make the fifteen hundred team. Like it was, it was close well, between her. She's fifth. She was fifth, but her and Nikki and Sinclair were all right next to each other. But I mean, in, you kind of you run that, that race again, and you might see someone else take third. Maybe, but in that race, two spots are accounted for, more or less, right? Hulan Simpson, they're going to make the team no matter what. So you're battling for one spot. 
in the in the eight hundred, you're battling for two spots because Audrey Wilson has that number one spot locked up. No doubt that she'll continue to be there, but the other two spots are wide open, whether it be now or later. So why wouldn't you go for a team where you have a chance for two open spots versus one open spot? Yeah, I mean, and that's what I'm And as you said, saying. maybe she even three open spots. Yeah. I also think that in general, she's shown, she has shown better tactics in 800-meter races than she has in 1,500-meter races where she hasn't always gotten her positioning or timing right, one or the other, in some of these 1,500-meter races. And I'm a huge fan of Kate Grace. I've had her on the podcast have followed her career for a long time, even before she made an Olympic team. And so I really want to see her make another Olympic team, but I feel like at this point she's a little bit lost on what to do. And that's kind of frustrating. And that really comes on the back of also moving over to the Bowerman track club where since she's made that move, she hasn't performed to her potential after leaving Drew Wartenberg and the Sacramento group there. So, I don't know. It feels like it's tough. And th- and then if you're if you're Kate Grace and you're sitting there, I mean, she's not even in my opinion the second best 1500 meter runner on her own team. I mean, Colleen like Quigley. Colleen Quigley, Colleen Quigley if she was the running the 15, yeah. would probably make a 1500 meter team. And so as someone who's trying to be the best in the world, it's got to be hard training knowing that. Right. It, it well, but also knowing Colleen probably would never pick the 1500 over the steeplechase because she's almost guaranteed a spot on the team in the steeple true. at this point. She won't. But I'm just saying in practice, you're getting beat in workouts. Yeah. I mean, I think they all know that when they go to Bowerman, though. It's like better to be training with Shelby and seeing what she's doing than not. True. I just think. Uh, I mean, in 2016, you know, Shelby wasn't running the 1500. It was just the Jenny Simpson show. So no one really predicted, uh, you know, when Kate Grace moved to the 15, no one was no one was seeing Shelby Houlihan as being, you know, the next Jenny Simpson really dominating the race. So I think maybe when she chose to move up to the 1500, probably thought it would be a little more uh, wide open for those last two spots, the way that the 800 is looking right now. Although, I mean, next year, maybe Charlene Lipsy is back in it. We haven't seen Charlene, Charlene Lipsy all year. Um, but Lipsy's never going to be someone that you think, at least within a year's time, she's not going to be someone that you look at and say, that's a guaranteed spot. I disagree. Uh, last year, her, it, her, <laughs> Ajay Wilson, Charlene Lipsy, Raven Rogers, like top three, done. Like it just seemed... But she's I never, she hasn't that shown that consistency like Wilson, though, is my I point. mean, she had, yeah, she had like a good year. Um, and then, I don't know, I guess she's been hurt. So, as you alluded, let's go ahead and jump. So, anyway, your world team there, Houlihan, Simpson, Hiltz, as you wanted to. Let's go ahead and jump to the 5K. Houlihan got the double, winning her 11th U.S. title to come back in the 5K. In dominating fashion, in typical Houlihan fashion. I think what was most interesting about the 5K was the fact that it was clear there were some team tactics going on mm-hmm. with the Bowman Track Club women in order to get Carissa Schweitzer a spot. I mean, Ula Hand was doing everything in her power to block out other runners. I mean, she was running. Schweitzer had the lead. Ula Hand was running in the second lane, basically trying <laughs> to block everybody else from coming around her to make their move, which honestly, I think in the end, 
played definitely played in as Schweitzer getting second because Schneider had to come all the way around her. I think ended up making her move a little bit early because of the way things were playing out and faded at the end. Whereas I think if, if Rachel Schneider had held, had just been more patient and waited for Houlihan to go and, and sort of lead the kick in the final 200, 250, then I think it would have been Houlihan, Schneider, and then Schweitzer. Yeah, I think that's what my prediction was, was that order. Well, you didn't pick Schweitzer on the podium. I did. I said Houlihan. Well, I think I thought Jenny Simpson was going to be in the you race. Did so say to be fair, fair if enough. you take Simpson out and move him up, that would be enough. top three. Fair enough. You had that correct. You had Schneider third, Schweitzer fourth. Simpson didn't end up racing. I did have Schweitzer third. She ended up second. Schneider ended up dropping to... Was she... Th- was she I think fourth? she was fifth. fifth. Uh, and yeah, then fifth. L. Perrier got fourth. L. yeah. So. Wait, no. No, Perrier, Perrier was third, third and Schneider yes. was fourth. Correct. But that'll be, they'll go to Worlds along yes. with Schweizer. And, but again, I think it came down to the fact that Schneider ended up making her move a little bit early. She also said she had a cold in the week leading up to USA's, which affected her a little bit. So you never know. But I still think watching the way the race played out that Schneider just... She got impatient. She was kind of getting pushed wide by Houlihan. She took the lead, ended up getting passed by Houlihan and Schweitzer at the end as she faded late. I think she just she just went a little bit early. But, you know, here we go. I mean, Schweitzer's first U.S. team coming out of University of Missouri. Yeah, her first year Last year. Pretty huge. Yeah. Especially against, as we said, a bunch of 1,500-meter runners with theoretically better kicks. Obviously, you would think Houlihan's going to beat anybody in this field, but to get second with the assist from Houlihan, perhaps, is still solid for her. And what was really a pretty honest race in terms of paces, I mean, they finished 15, 15, 15, 17 for Schweitzer. Pretty honest pace for a championship-style event. I was interest, uh, To me, it was kind of interesting, though, to see... I mean, Hall was up there, some sort of helping Schweitzer a little bit. But it was interesting to me that Vanessa Frazier wasn't more active at the front with those other teammates because she did, I know, share on Instagram you know, that she was going for a world team. It seemed like she was thinking about that and having that yeah, expectation. Yeah, but that's also what everyone's going to put on their Instagram, <laughs> right? Fair enough. But... But to me, I, I guess I was just more surprised not to see her up there with her teammates. You know, why wouldn't you put yourself in that position in a place you're theoretically comfortable because you've been doing workouts with these well, maybe women? she doesn't actually do workouts with them. Maybe so. We'll see. Maybe I those, mean, maybe I, I did talk to Schweizer. I wrote a story on her a couple of weeks uh, before USA's. Okay. And I think she said her, the main person she trains with is actually Courtney Freerix. Interesting. Yeah. And, and if you follow them on Instagram, you see they post. I mean, they all post a lot of pictures together. They're obviously all friends. But yep. I think her and Courtney um, maybe are similar. Hmm. Interesting. It would be it would be really fascinating to be, you know, you should, you should you're, a story you should pitch for s- at some point is to go just go undercover with the Bowerman babes. And undercover? Undercover. Well, whatever. In, on, like on location. No, on location. <laughs> 
on location behind the scenes. I would have to skip all the workouts. <laughs> follow not not actually working out with them, but like Chris Lear style, like go embed yourself yeah. maybe at like an altitude camp or something with them for like a month just to see the dynamics. Yeah. I think that would be fascinating. Oh, for sure. And fun, probably too. You'd have to do it when the Bachelor is on, so you could be a part of their. Yeah, their, apparently their fun everyone watching everyone events. watches the Bachelor <laughs> in Track Nation. Yeah. It's shocking that people watch that. So show. so. Anyway, Bahulahan gets her eleventh title, with a with an impressive kick. Although maybe not as impressive as she has had to have in the past. She didn't. She really wasn't challenged. At the end, Schweitzer holds on. For third, a second, or for second, a second and a half back. El Perrier, let's talk about her. You know, she's not a name that you hear a lot about. Finished I mean, a really solid, outside of, I guess, outside of those top kind of track circles. New Balance athlete. This is her first U.S. team. Right. So, I mean, she's the same age as Schweizer, first year pro. Yep. Um, you know, obvi- she's never, she's won one national title, but it was a, a national. Uh, it was the indoor mile title last year, so yeah. not as much swag as like an outdoor title. She's been second and third a ton. Uh, I mean, she's really interesting because she started out as a steeplechaser, all American steeplechaser, and then switched to the fifteen hundred mile at towards the end of college. And this year, did her first ever five k. Um, and so actually, USA's was only her third five k ever. Um, wow. Her second five k. She ran like a 15.04, like 15.0 something, like, and won by a pretty big margin, maybe like yep. 10 seconds. So it was clear that she had the ability to run under 15 minutes and to do that in your second ever 5K. I think her coaches were like, well, uh, this is the event you're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And she's got the 1500 meter kick. Right. Now, it's hard to be a U.S. athlete in the 5K at Worlds because... Obiri, Hassan, Almazayana. Yeah. I mean, the they're gonna be thirty seconds ahead of you, even if you run fifteen flat. So it's it's tough to think about competing on the world stage in the five k. But clearly, she's found an event that she's good at. Is really early in her experience with it. You never really know what we can get, and with that fifteen hundred meter speed, she can kick strongly. So she. She's going to be somebody with Schweitzer who's going to be on U.S. podiums probably for a long time. Yeah. And it's cool to see her finish so close to Schweizer because Schweizer was the one that everybody talked about, like, in yeah. college. Perrier hasn't gotten so, the same fan. Yeah. Fail. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, Houlihan will likely choose the 1500 for world. So, Schweitzer, Perrier, and Schneider will be your three. And I think Worlds. Schneider also comes from a 1500 background. She does. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she just ran a mile PR. Yeah, so it's interesting to see that shift start to happen. I mean, you think Kate Grace should join the 5K? I don't know about that, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I think she needs to choose something besides the 15, and I think she might actually have aptitude at the 5K. But we'll let Jerry and company decide. All right, so that's your men or sorry women's 15 women's 5k let's jump to the steeples quickly we're going to kind of gloss through these because it was pretty much as predicted if it wasn't for me being cute and choosing jordan Mann over (laughs) andy bear you know in the men's steeple then these races went exactly as anybody would have predicted your top three in each event were easily the the top three on the podium 
at USA's, you picked both races exactly right. I got the women's right. Only, again, because I was being cute, missed the men's third place. Hillary Bohr won. Stanley Cabane, second. Andy Bear, third. In the, in the men's steeple women's, it went Coburn, Frerichs, Quigley, as we had predicted, with Coburn winning, winning in dominating fashion. To me, there's only a couple things to talk about across both of those races. One would be, obviously, Andy Bear finally making it after finishing fourth countless times. So he makes his first world team. That's got to feel pretty good. Yeah. Are you going to try to get an Andy Bear interview? I think that'd be a good one. That'd be a good one. Yeah, he was easy. I should do that. You he should. was easy to root for for this. Just, you know, your heart always breaks for that fourth place person. And he's been in that position so many times. And it was dominating fashion. Those, those yeah. three separated. Hillary Bohr set a pretty honest pace from the beginning. It was a clear podium pretty much early on in that race. The women's race went out differently. I was expecting a faster pace or at least one of those three athletes, Quigley, Frerichs, or Coburn, to set in a more honest pace. But they waited, and it wasn't until Coburn decided to take it with about a K to go that that, that field got split up. The fascinating thing to me about the women's steeple was typically everybody's king off Coburn and following her. Typically, Frerichs and Quigley are kind of behind her waiting for her, her to move. And in this case, Coburn sat behind Frerichs. And was basically sort of saying, look, this is on you to kind of set the agenda right. for this race. <laughs> and nobody really knew when Coburn would take it. And she did with about a K to go and pulled away in pretty dominating fashion over the final K, showing a dominant finish. But that was just fascinating to see kind of the tables turn a little bit where Coburn's like, no, you beat me last time we <laughs> lined up, at least in the Diamond League last year, Diamond League final last year. So I'm going to put it on you, Frerichs, to actually take this race if you want earlier. And she didn't until Coburn decided she couldn't wait any longer. She went and the race was over and it strung out from there. So props to Coburn on the strategy. Yeah. And for executing it perfectly. Yeah. I'm excited to see what happens uh, just because Worlds is so far away. And you know that Jerry is making sure that Courtney is peaked for worlds because at this point it's you know it's not like preparing someone for the 1500 I feel like those that top three in those steeplechase is almost guaranteed to happen uh so and I think you know people have said Emma Coburn kind of maintains that really high level the whole season and Courtney uh you know last year really peaked at the very end so that should be really interesting and also um Ali Ostrander, recent, you know, brand new pro, makes her first world team. Yep. That was really cool to see. As you predicted. Yeah. And she was very clearly like fourth place. I think she beat the next person by like at least 10 seconds. There was, it wasn't even close. So she really earned her spot. It was cool to see at the very end. I don't know if you saw going around on Twitter where the, the official brought out three flags Mm -hmm. for the top three. And Coburn said no. You could see her saying no. We need four. Gave her flag to Ostrander before they got another flag for her. So pretty cool show of sportsmanship there by Coburn after winning. Thinking about Ostrander, I was sad for Mel Lawrence. I predicted she could potentially make her first world team and get fourth, but I knew she was in trouble once she found herself on the front early in the yeah. race and was kind of just forced to lead. And unfortunately, that usually never works out. <laughs> in a tactical affair unless you're one of the dominant athletes. So she faded 
hard at the end after leading early. And but I knew I knew once she was on the front that the, my prediction for her getting fourth probably wasn't going to play out. Props to Ostrander though for getting that first team. She turned pro as we mentioned in the preview show. Brooks Beast going to be a Brooks athlete. It'll be interesting to see how she does and how quickly she can bridge the gap because clearly there's a gap to those top three at this point. But she definitely has the potential to bridge the gap at some point to compete with Quigley and Frerichs for for a podium. And then if we have four women vying for podiums in the future, that's going to be really fascinating. I actually see her as more likely to move to the 5K or the 10K really? uh, next year. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, next year only three people are going to make it. Uh, and she honestly probably has a better shot in one of the other races than the steeplechase, I would think. But the 5K is pretty quickly getting crowded there, as we just talked about. I mean, about, maybe so. the 10K. I feel like there's uh, some depth issues in the 10K. I agree especially, with that. Especially, I mean, two of the... I mean, yeah, Emily and Molly are marathoners, but Kellen and Stephanie are like way better at the marathon usually yeah uh i would think if there, I, you if know what? A i bet spot. she's gonna i think she's gonna go to the 10k next if there year is a that's weak my spot. early prediction that's an interesting prediction if there is a weak spot on the women's side it is in the 10k depth as you alluded to especially because depending on what happens with the marathon trials emily sisson molly huddle if they make those teams if stephanie bruce or kellen taylor makes those teams yeah, yeah, you know, they, they would choose do to do the marathon. They may or may not yeah. come back and do the 10K or do the 10K at the Olympics. So there may be more open spots depending on what happens across those two events. So you're right. that That's an interesting prediction. Would be interesting to see how it plays out. I don't know the schedule at the Olympic trials for next year. I don't even know if you could do both events potentially. I mean, that's, yeah, a, pretty that rare, that's a pretty rare double, <laughs> right? Yeah. So interesting. I would figure you'd have to choose one of those, but that would be interesting to see if she picks the 10K. I like that. I like that early prediction. The next race on the track was the men's 5K, which we've already talked about. Then was the men's 800. And so we just have three more races to quickly recap. The men's 800, the women's 8, and the men's 15. Men's 8 went... Exactly as you predicted, Brazier, Murphy, Hopple. I had Murphy, Brazier, Harris. Harris made this race, though. I mean, he led it through the first laps and then, to his credit, came back and almost nabbed that that third-place spot, you know, kind of coming back on Hopple at the end after getting gapped. That but, was an exciting finish. But fell to fourth. The thing to me that was most fascinating about this race was the fact that Brazier executed it perfectly. Clayton Murphy was the one that screwed up the tactics. I mean, he was out of position. You could see him as 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 they started the second lap. He was he was running on the outside, like close to lane three. Had to do a bunch of maneuvering just to get in position to try to challenge Brazier. And by that point, it was too late. So Murphy was the one with actually the bad tactics, and Brazier was was perfect. We positioned right behind Harris, stayed on the inside, and then you know was able to make his move in the second lap to come around and and win in dominating fashion. As you would have predicted, you know, if, if you told me he was going to run perfect tactics, I would say he'd win in dominating fashion, and and he did. So props to Brazier for getting it exactly right, both in tactics and in talent. <laughs> you know, whether you credit you can credit him for that or not is a different question. Uh, one one notable thing about uh, Brazier versus Murphy, real quick, is that although they're both 
uh, in the Nike Oregon Project. Brazier is coached by Pete Julian and Clayton Murphy is coached by Alberto Salazar. So a little bit of a, I mean, I'm sure they do a lot of in, workouts internal together. Internal team yeah, but rivalry. It's kind of fun. Score one for Pete Julian, who typically has more success at the middle distance, 1,500 meter uh, levels versus Salazar, who's the 10K to marathon kind of expert, so to speak. But obviously coaches that 1,500-meter athlete, 800-meter athlete as well. So the other thing to me here was Hopple getting third, making his first world team. Kansas Jayhawk raced in the Jayhawk jersey, but oh, now, now but now has turned pro. Yeah. So Hopple actually has now turned pro. What do you think about that announcement? Um, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, you know, he... I mean, he literally proved that he has, he has nothing left to prove the NCAA. He went undefeated through almost 20 races. I think it was 19 total races in the 800 from, you know, indoor and outdoor season, uh, won both national titles. The only thing, the only thing he didn't get is his school record, which is held by Jim Ryan, uh, the previous collegiate record, um, you know, or the overall collegiate record, um, Jim Ryan. So I think to come off That's of a, a pretty season, tough yeah. Oh, it's uh, <laughs> a tough standard to beat. Yeah, I mean it's the third. It was the college record for fifty years before Donovan Brazier broke it. Um, so it's no joke. I mean, I I talked to him uh maybe a month before USA's, and he said at that point he was planning to go back to Kansas, uh, mm. and his main goal was to break Jim Ryan's record. But to actually once you actually make the world team, I mean this is the most valuable he'll ever be as a right. prospective pro because i mean the only thing that happens is you decrease your value by going back to school right, right. like maybe you don't go undefeated next year maybe you don't run as fast next year so well especially going into an olympic year next year you want to try to take full advantage of that entire year right and then potential. you can yeah you don't have to go raise it conference he, he hasn't yet announced his agent or shoe sponsor so we don't know yet which direction he's going, but you have to think that they're probably he's probably been approached. There are probably discussions happening at least at at, at a high level, so he knows his value is there. Otherwise, I can't imagine he would have just turned pro not knowing anything, right? So I'm sure he's probably already in discussions. Where do you think somebody like that would it would end up? I mean, I actually think he'll stay in Kansas, uh, at least. I bet he'll stay in Kansas for the year. I think, <laughs> I mean, maybe he'll go somewhere else, coach? but I bet he'll like finish college maybe next semester or however long he has left and like keep training with his coach. That's possible. But if he does that, um, I can't imagine he's in a Nike kit. Um. Although Kansas is a Nike school, right? Are they or are they Adidas? I actually thought they were Adidas. Are they? Let's see. I don't know. That's a good question. If he stays in Kansas, though, then I think he would end up as an Adidas athlete just because typically the Nike athletes want. Now you're right. Kansas is an Adidas yeah. school. So yeah, he probably ends up staying with his college coach, switching over to the Adidas pro kit because usually the Nike, at, Nike, Nike wants you to go train with their little groups. So, you know, I would think if Nike's on the table, then they would probably push him to go train with one of their groups. Yeah like Oregon project uh yeah I mean even 
you know, I mean, Donovan Brazier only joined NOP this past year. He's been pro for like two or three years. You know, he stayed at A&M and finished his degree. Uh, true, true. So I think I think now, you know, there's a lot of precedent of kids turning pro in college and sort of doing the contract negotiations where the shoe company will pay for the rest of your tuition to where I think it probably is more common to stay where you are, finish school, and then go somewhere else, depending on your situation. Uh, yeah. We'll see. We'll see, but I I would bet on Adidas being his sponsor either way. And so we'll see. Next, quickly, women's eight. You know, I think just like in the men in the women's 10K with Molly Huddle, I think with the women's eight, it's Death Taxes and Ajay Wilson as she won in dominating fashion. She led at the 400 mark and still held on for the win in a 157 <laughs> which is really impressive <laughs> she basically time trialed a 157 yeah leading, she's gonna win worlds leading all by herself she's gonna win worlds because we just found out that caster Semenya lost her appeal and is ineligible to show up there so that puts ajay wilson in as the favorite as you said for worlds hannah green gets second as i predicted the oregon athlete and I don't think anybody, I don't think a lot of people were predicting her getting no, second. No, I mean. There was a lot of talk about Raven Rogers, yeah. as you predicted. But Hannah, for Hannah Green to, to win or to beat Rogers was, is really huge for her. Yeah. I mean, Rogers didn't necessarily look uh, as much, uh, she didn't look like the Raven Rogers that we've come to know over the past couple of years. But then again, maybe you could say that about this whole year. I mean, she lost the the national indoor title to a high schooler so you know that was a couple months ago but um yeah I would say she hasn't looked as on her game I mean it's cool to see Hannah Green uh beat her in that race because I think Raven beat Hannah for maybe three or four national titles like she was runner-up at NCAA so many times to Raven Rogers uh, yep. so they're pretty familiar with each other yeah, I mean, you're more bullish on Rodgers than I am. I am consistently frustrated by her tactics, and I feel like she should have a better resume at this point than she does, especially training with Wilson and having the advantage of being able to basically just key off of her in races. But that being said, she still makes a world team here. That's still a big deal. I think she should have finished second. She should have beaten Hannah Green in this race, but didn't. Didn't quite play it right. Either way, those three are going to Worlds. Wilson... Green, Rogers, which frankly, given what they ran and given now that those intersex athletes can't compete, it's a solid team. And they ran a really solid, yeah. really solid, fat, really solid fast times. I think all could potentially be in the final. It's hard to make an 800 meter final at a, at a major championships. There's always things that happen. But if all three ended up in the final, then I think all three have. I mean, Wilson certainly could win. The other two have a podium shot. Yeah. Depending on how those races play out. I mean, yeah, it's interesting taking Semenya out of the mix because it just totally changes the dynamics of the race. Completely. Let's finish it with the men's 15 last race in or on the weekend for the distance distances. We thought Centro would follow through with the win. He got beat by his former teammate, Craig Angles. Although Centro was coming back on him, it was a bit of a photo finish with a lean at the line. 
it was interesting to see for me that Centro got beat tactically. Yeah. I mean, Angles played the better tactical hand, which is pretty rare because Centrowitz is always the one who, who plays it exactly right. And I think if Centro had played his cards better tactically in this race, he would have won, but he didn't. Kind of got left out, had to come around Ingles at the end, maybe waited a little bit late to make his move. And Ingles gets the win, but he played it perfectly. And as he talked about in some of his post-rate interviews, he said he watched the tactics from previous races. He saw how Centrowitz liked to take that pole position with a lap to go and, and sort of control the field from there. Angles wouldn't let him have that position, kind of forced him to go on the outside, and it got him the win. So props to Craig Ingles, mullet and all, <laughs> for getting the win here. Yeah, it's a little bit of a passing of the guard uh, in a way. I Potentially. Mean, we haven't seen the last of Centro, but... We have not. It's a fun, fun little rivalry to watch. And I do think... As Centro alluded, you know, he's not quite sharp. They're clearly right. focused on worlds. You know, he said, look, if I can do this now, I'm going to be in a really good spot for worlds. So I think he's just excited to be healthy. I think actually part of his tactical issues in this race, as he alluded to in his interview, was that he just wanted to make sure he was making the team. And I think may have been focused more on top three versus the win. Whereas traditionally... When he's on his game, he's focused on winning. And in this case, right. he's kind of been coming back from injury. So so to his credit or discredit, that was a factor for him with his tactics. But he made the team. You know, I still think he's probably your top seed for the U.S. going into Worlds, right. assuming he can stay healthy. But Craig Ingalls is now somebody who has shown he can play the tactics right to potentially compete for a third or, first spot, third or fourth spot at Worlds. Josh Thompson... Bowerman Track Club, teammate of Centrowitz, gets the surprise third. Ben Blankenship, fourth. Thompson doesn't have the standard, so he doesn't go. Blankenship does. But you got to give credit to Thompson for, for getting third yeah, in this race. that was wild. It was huge. Who knew huge Thompson was even in that race? <laughs> right. He was a steeplechaser the last time I thought about Josh Thompson. Yeah, <laughs> pretty nuts. I mean, he really hasn't done much, honestly, since going to uh, Bowerman Track Club. So... That was that was pretty wild. Yeah. Again, though, Came I will nowhere. say another Bowerman Track Club athlete, male athlete, makes the top three. Doesn't have the standard. Yeah. So maybe that's an issue with Schumacher's planning. Maybe but it's still, an issue with USATF, or we just need to let. The fair enough. We're chase letting the them go chase the standard. As, yeah. as I think as, I mean, that's if it, more if it, it had is. been 2017, then all of these athletes would have a chance to go run for yeah. the standard and probably would make it. So so. So fair point that we can blame USATF for that and their inconsistency, especially when Worlds is so late. But it does it is encouraging for me. The Bowman Track Club men, other than Evan Jager, had kind of been on the sidelines, you know, not making podiums at USA's or making podiums but doing underwhelming things on the world stage. So it's good to see them kind of back, even with Jager out of this meet and Ryan Hill out of this meet, to have others on podiums. It's sort of a resurgence. Um, and now with Centrowitz in that group, sort of a resurgence of the men's side of the Bowerman Track Club, where the women have been basically dominating the, the yeah. headlines from that team. Yeah. So that was that was cool for me to see. You know, also amazing to see Ben Blankenship, the the salty veteran, kind of <laughs> come through to get fourth here and make another U.S. team, which he always seems to be able to do, even though he wasn't top three. He has the standard, so he's going. 
just just a salty veteran who always seems to be in the right place at the right time. So congrats to Ben on making another world team. As we wrap, and we've only got a few minutes here, I wanted to quickly mention some other headlines from the meet. Obviously a great distance distance meet, but you know the sprints were fascinating as well. We had a 400-hurdle world record for the women, which was crazy. Yeah, and that, so, was, that was pretty insane. So that was a big deal. You had an American record in the pole vault, Sam Kendricks, got that done and was then dogpiled by the whole pole vault field, which was cool to see. And then Allison Felix making headlines. She ended up making the final. Clearly not quite on the top of her game coming back from having her child. Racing without a sponsor officially, although it came out later that she was racing in athletic athletic gear. Eventually, Post-USA's announced Athleta as her new sponsor. First time they've sponsored an athlete at all. Yeah. Other than having local ambassadors and things like that. I mean, she's their first big elite professional athlete. So that was a big part of the discussions. Allison, Allison Felix was very vocal in the meet about running for women, taking a stand for women and for women especially who are moms. So that's cool to see. It's also cool to see another player get involved as a sponsor now with Atleta coming in. What were your impressions watching everything play out around Allison Felix? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, she penned that great op-ed in the New York Times. Um, and a lot of us who follow the sport, you know, were aware that when she, after she had her child, Nike wasn't willing uh, to, you know, to sign a full contract or, you know, she was still having all these contract negotiations. But at the same time, I think most of us figured by now she had re-signed with Nike. So when she showed up in the mix zone with like a blank singlet on, that was pretty shocking. <laughs> um, and I mean, hey, good for her. Uh, it does make you curious. A lot of it we just don't know. You know, like track isn't like basketball or football where we know exactly like how much these player, players are making and like what kind of negotiations they're working with. So it does make you curious, like, you know, did Nike still lowball her after you would think that like after the whole maternity leave thing came out that nike would want to make sure that they like made amends Mm. and signed their top athlete again uh but i mean maybe they still didn't offer her enough money and she decided to look elsewhere or maybe it was more of a moral stance of i can't get behind this company anymore because you guys left me out to dry and now i've made it public um, my guess is the parting was mutual knowing Nike yeah. once you turn against them and come out against them like that it's probably regardless of faith, how it looks yeah. from a PR perspective I don't think you can rectify it they don't like their athletes doing that talking about stuff like that publicly and turning against the brand you know Nike's a very or wants to see a die die hard commitment and loyalty and I just I think once she came out against them that was probably the the final straw for yeah, Nike. That makes sense. And I'm sure at that point, Felix pretty she much knew that it. it was over. So she was doing what she could with her voice. I mean, to me, this is great for the sport, not only to get another brand involved, but to have Allison Felix, who, by the way, is the most decorated track and field athlete ever, yeah. male <laughs> or female. She has 26 global championship medals. Usain Bolt would be second at 22. So 
I've heard a lot of people say, well, she's the most decorated female. No, she's the most decorated male or male or female athlete in global championship history. 26 medals. I tweeted a stat in response to a few others that if you look between 2011 and 2017 through Worlds in 2017, if you exclude 2013 where she was injured, she's won one-eighth of U.S. medals at global championships. That's insane. You know, the U.S. takes over 120 athletes to these global championships since she's won one-eighth of our medals. Yeah. And so she's a huge contributor. The fact that she got didn't get respect is ridiculous from Nike, but it's also ridiculous that Nike didn't allow her to have a voice. You know, Nike is very... They curate their their public personas for their athletes, and they don't like their athletes to speak out or to show personality. They want them to be these machines that can just perform on the track. And so... Allison Felix has been that largely, you know, pretty quiet, hasn't shown a lot of personality, has just gone out and done her thing quietly. And so it's really cool now to see her unfettered by that Nike PR engine, just being herself, speaking her mind, taking stand for issues that really matter. I think that's good for track and field. I think that's good for the world. And I'm excited to see what comes of that. I'm also really bullish on her in Tokyo, bet against Allison Felix next year at your peril. I think she'll be... (laughs) She'll come back strong. She'll medal again at an individual level. Whether really? she, I think she will. Whether I think that would be shocking. Okay, we'll see. I'm just putting it out I there. I do think I'm predicting. she'll be on the four by four, and I do think she'll get a medal. But I okay actually don't see her. I mean, I I think she could get top three at the trials and make it, but I just don't know if she's going to be able to run like a forty nine again. I would we'll say see. bet against Allison Felix at your peril. I know. So. Uh, no, but I mean, I agree with you. I think like, you know, Allison's always been one of my favorite athletes from when I first started running track uh, just because she is the best. Um, and but it's true, like you sort of never really got a feel for her personality. Um, and so it's really cool to see her blossom and be able to now that she has like this cause to get behind uh to really let her voice be heard so that's that's been really cool to see it'll also be interesting to see if athleta does something bigger with their logoing i mean typically brands like athleta lululemon have been very subtle with their logo i mean you wouldn't have known what she was wearing with athleta yeah it just looked like a generic because it just looked like a black singlet (laughs) without a brand and so they're clearly going to have to up their game in order to actually get the visual presence that you would want from an athlete standing on starting lines. I bet they'll have a whole like Felix line. I can see that happening. Yeah, with I like agree. her own logo, which will be cool. So, congrats to Allison Felix getting that sponsor. It'll also be interesting to see if she gets shoe sponsorship to go with that. The that apparently is in the works to have that in parallel to the apparel sponsorship from Athleta. She's been sponsored previously by Adidas, and by now now Nike so it's hard to believe that either of those two brands you know at this point would be her shoe sponsor so who then does that mean you know so New Balance Balance probably because they they invest a lot especially in women at the elite level so I would I would predict that she ends up in a New Balance shoe but we'll see so but again, I'm predicting an Olympic medal from Allison <laughs> Felix next year. You heard it here first on the Running Road podcast. I mean, podcast. I agree with you. I just think it'll be the 4 by 4 Individual <laughs> Olympic medal. That's my prediction. All right. With that, we're going to wrap this up. Thanks to JoJo for joining me. 
as always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.